Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers, and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC Movie Rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Thank you. For decades, the history of the DC Universe has been marked by its crisis-level events, status quo-altering storylines that have rewritten continuity while also providing a meta-commentary on DC Comics publishing itself, and all under a signature red glow. This is Red Skies, a 13-part podcast epic mining these events and the Superman of it all. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. This is Red Skies Chapter 5, and joining me to discuss the road to infinite crisis is returning guest, Scott Honig. Welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm always thrilled to be here and to talk about some really fun comics. Yes, this is a pretty interesting stretch of comics that we'll be looking at. The lead up to Infinite Crisis, which I think for a lot of fans was perhaps more exciting, more enjoyable than Infinite Crisis itself. I I tend to get that sense in hearing from people. And that's one of the things we'll talk about. The feeling as this was coming out, that excitement, whether or not we ultimately feel it was paid off in what followed, how the work holds up almost 20 years later, divorced from the event itself, really just looking at these various miniseries and one-shots on their own. So I'm excited to unpack all of that with you. Let me ask you, though, just a personal big-picture question. As far as these crisis events generally, right, and over the course of this event, we're, we're looking at all of them, what, where do you land on these? Do you tend to enjoy these, these big crisis-level events? What, what's your experience been with them generally? I think mileage varies event to event. Um, and a lot of it depends on what age I was when I read it for the first time, where in my life I was. Um, so this, these miniseries and, and the lead up to Infinite Crisis was all at a time when I was relatively new to the wider DC universe. I'd started in the early 2000s with Superman and a little bit of Flash, but but this was the first time where I was really seeing the DC universe unfolding writ large. Um, all corners of the universe being explored, outer space, the magical corner, the villain side, all of it. And so um, it was exciting. It was exciting because I was, uh, you know, I was in my young 20s. I think I either just had my first child. She was a baby, but or or I might have been childless at this point. And so it was just like a fun time to explore a universe that I just didn't know that well. So I was I was very, very excited um, to to experience all of it, new characters and new concepts and um, you know, some of them held up well and some of them didn't. But um, I like the idea of a crisis event, I think, sometimes more than I like the execution. 
Um, I guess it depends on what DC editorials motivations were for putting forth the event. You know, if it was to usher in a new phase of storytelling for the entire line, whether it was to clean things up, as I know you explored with the original crisis on infinite earths, um, or whether it was just to, you know, a showcase for some characters or to kill some of them off or, you know, whatever the, the point was, I think that determines the, the overall success and, and my overall enjoyment of the event. But for the most part, I think I'm always excited when there's a sort of line wide crossover, the opportunity to get to see characters you don't often see interact with each other. Um, usually the stakes are higher than they are in the regular course of storytelling over, you know, a month to month schedule. So yeah, I'm in general, I think I'm a fan of more than, more than I'm not. Gotcha. No, that all makes sense. I, I agree totally about the motivation, right? The ultimate motivation always sell books and make money, but sell books, make money. But beyond that, no, I think you're spot on when we're dealing with events that seem manufactured more so to achieve a result continuity wise, for example, you can still have fun with it, but maybe there's a little less meat on the bone there. Whereas if you have something that is hopefully more character driven, uh, or like you said, that's meant to usher in kind of a, a new phase of storytelling. I think, you know, there are different, obviously different ways that this can shake out depending on the event and who's involved and, and all of that. This is an interesting period because this was, and we'll talk more about this next week when we do infinite crisis itself, but an event designed to be a true sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths on its 20th anniversary. And so you have all of that swirling around. Again, I'm and I'll I'll keep be keeping this in mind as I do my Infinite Crisis reread and when we have that discussion, but at least my my memory of Infinite Crisis and my impression of it, I know there were continuity changes that came out of it. The for me, the one that always uh, jumps out is the, uh, the reinstating Clark's past as Superboy. Uh, which had been jettisoned post-crisis, and now this was once again part of his history. But at the same time, I never got the sense that was that was the main thrust, the main reason for doing that story. It was more to have a big crisis event, a sequel to the original one on the 20th anniversary. So that was always kind of and, been my impression. And if I recall, was this the event that, that expanded the multiverse back into a multiverse? Yeah, so it's funny because my memory was that the return of the multiverse was infinite crisis itself. And then I was doing the first episode of this event with Dan Greenfield. He was like, no, no, like that happens in 52, the actual rebirth mm -hmm. of the multiverse. We get the formation of new earth at the end okay, of infinite right. crisis. <laughs> so, okay. Hey, speaking of 52, you're going to be back in two mm -hmm. weeks for a discussion of that 52 weekly series. And this might surprise the audience. I've never read it. So this is going to be my first time making my way through 52. I had started it when it first came out and I just kind of fell off. So I'm excited to finally read it after all these years. If my memory holds up as well as I hope it does, I think you're really going to enjoy it. I loved it when it was first coming out, but it's a chore. I mean, it's, you know, a weekly comic for a year is not easy to keep up with, but I remember really liking it. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting a chance to now sort of binge the whole thing. I think it'll be a, a different experience and hopefully a, a better experience even than first time around. Now, if I were smart, I would pace out the reading of that, right? And take my time with it. 
I don't have the time to read it weekly, but to still to still sort of uh, make a little bit more of a meal out of it and not try to binge it. Yet, knowing myself, I'm sure it will be a few days before, and I'm like 52 <laughs> issues, here we go. And then I'm going to come into the episode and be like, Scott, this was so dense, it was so much. <laughs> but no, it'll, it'll yeah. be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so, me too. as far as what we read for this one, uh, and, and for people who know this era, you you can probably rattle off the list before before I even get to it. But we started, of course, with the Countdown to Infinite Crisis special written by Jeff Johns, Judd Winnick, and Greg Rucka. Then, of course, we have those four six-issue lead-in miniseries, Day of Vengeance by Bill Willingham and Justiniano, Villains United by Gail Simone and Dale Eaglesham, Ran Thanagar War by Dave Gibbons and Ivan Rice, the OMAC Project by Greg Rucka and Jesus Saiz. And in the middle of the OMAC Project, we had the spin-off crossover, Sacrifice, which <laughs> spanned the three Superman titles at the time, Superman Action and Adventure, as well as Rucka's Wonder Woman series. And though I didn't assign this, I did also take a look at the first arc of JSA Classified, written by Jeff Johns and drawn by Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti that dealt with Power Girl's convoluted origin story and involved Psycho Pirate and helped set the stage, like all of these others, for Infinite Crisis. In our Identity Crisis episode, we discussed Crisis of Conscience. So between that episode and, and of course, Identity Crisis itself. So between these two episodes, I think we've hit the vast, vast majority of the material leading into Infinite Crisis. We were talking off mic. One of the ones we didn't do was the DC special Return of Donna Troy miniseries. Uh, for any fans of that, I'm sorry, we're, we're skipping that one. I was saying to you off mic, I was like, we have Power Girl and her convoluted origin story. And I was like, that's about as much as I care. I can't, I can't really bring myself to, to do yet another one. But uh, it's a fair amount of material that we looked at. And I think it'll give us plenty to talk about. I think so. I think so. Yeah. And I think you're right to, to draw a line somewhere because it's at a certain point, the impact on the main event is so minimal that it probably wasn't worth it to, to check it out anyway. Not for this purpose, you know, it's, I wouldn't tell somebody if they're, if they're into Donna Troy, not to check it out, but for this, it didn't make sense. Yes. And look, this was the period of time for better or worse. And I would say, especially in retrospect, probably worse. It's one thing to have these mini series, but we, the infinite identity crisis and infinite crisis, those events spilled over into a lot of books and, in our Identity Crisis episode, we talked about some tie-ins to that story that I thought worked great. Like there was an issue of JSA where you got to see Dr. Midnight perform the autopsy. You know, it was like, oh, this was a great tie-in and it was really interesting. Uh, as we continue to move forward and especially as we get closer to Infinite Crisis, my my memory of this from the time and especially what little I have reread now, especially on the Superman side, it it was more disruptive. It felt like more table setting. And it's one of those things where now when you go back and you read, for example, the, as we did, the Greg Rucka run on Adventures of Superman starts off great. And then, you know, towards the end, it's it's dealing with a lot of this infinite crisis business. And so, again, especially years removed looking back on it, I don't know how much that that helps the run. But at the time, look, all the books were moving towards it. It was an all hands on deck sort of thing. And I can, I can appreciate that. Well, you're... To that point, though, it all goes back to, you know, why are you, why are we rereading this? I mean, obviously taking it out of the context of 2005 and six when, when all this was coming out, reading it now, as you said, almost 20 years later, 
if your intention is, I want to see how Greg Rucka's run kind of pans out. Yeah, by the time you get towards the end, you're going to be a little disappointed because whatever momentum he's building for his own story kind of gets curtailed because it has to dovetail into the main event. So when we were reading it for that purpose, you're right. It didn't feel as satisfying. But now coming back and seeing those issues that at that point were disruptive, but now are leading us directly towards Infinite Crisis, which is the purpose of these discussions for the next couple of weeks for you. They make a lot more sense. And I find that they are a lot more relevant and a lot more entertaining because our mindset has changed in terms of how we're approaching them, like what our purpose is, what what the intention for the discussions are. So reading Sacrifice here outside of a discussion of Greg Rucka's run is a much more satisfying experience than it was having to kind of put those issues into the sequence of his of his art. No, very, very much so. And that's why it has been interesting over the course of this podcast. There are certain eras, runs, issues, arcs where we've hit them a couple of times from a couple of different perspectives. And 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 it is always interesting to see exactly where they fl- where they fit in. That context is always such a huge piece of all of this. So again, when we talk about this lead up to Infinite Crisis, and it's funny, when I was first mapping out this event, I had all of this as one episode. Again, in the early mapping. And then I very quickly was like, what are you doing? <laughs> You've got to separate this out because Infinite Crisis itself, there's a ton going on. And we do also have those other specials and there's various tie-ins, but even just that, those seven issues in and of themselves, there's a lot to work through there. And this buildup, this really was a moment for DC fans. And, you know, not unlike yourself, this was the first real crisis event that I was there for. And we've been talking about this in these episodes. Like I was just a little too young when Zero Hour first hit. I came to it later, but I wasn't, I certainly wasn't reading that main miniseries as it was coming out. I was reading the Superman issues that tied into it. And I was so confused when those pages went to white at the end. And even something like Identity Crisis, I was there for that. And we talked last week about how it, it does earn its crisis title, but it's still not the kind of crisis that we're talking about when we talk about the original one, when we talk about Infinite Crisis. So this, this was a first for me. And, you know, for anyone who wasn't reading the books at the time, uh, I, you know, I can't stress how exciting this all was. And I was doing a little bit of research. So that special that we're starting with here, the, the countdown special, that was originally solicited as DC Countdown. The full title was not revealed in the solicitation, and it came out at the end of March 2005. And what I was trying to get a sense of, and I didn't get a definitive answer, but I got at least a little bit of clarity. You know, my memory of it was that we didn't know the full title until it hit stands. And certainly my memory, unless I'm just totally off here, I remember being surprised when I saw the true title and what this was actually building towards, what it was actually counting down to. Uh, someone sent me an IGN article that was breaking down a lot of the history of this. And the the article was posted the week before this book came out and it talked about the full title. So, and again, audience, if you can shed a little bit more light on this or Scott, if you happen to know, please share. But again, my understanding of it, for the most part, this was a surprise when the book came out as far as the true title. It seems like within the comics community, and I ha- it's one of those things I have to imagine word had gotten out in some way, shape or form, but especially if you were really dialed into this, 
But for at least some fans, I mean, myself included, seeing that book and seeing what the true title was, like that was the moment. What, what memory, of, of, if any, do you have of that? I wish I had more, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm listening to you talk and I'm, and I'm trying to recall. And I, and I, don't, I don't really remember. I mean, I remember being surprised by the contents of the issue, which I know we'll talk about, but I don't remember. I remember being excited about the release of it. I remember thinking this feels big. This feels like it's a lead into something as far as the exact reveal of the title that I don't remember, but I will say, you know, if we're thinking back to to the middle of 2005, the internet was around, but it wasn't quite what it is today in terms of social media and, you know, and all that. Now it's virtually impossible to keep something like this a secret. I mean, it is in the solicitations. Usually, uh, you know, these things are spoiled, you know, partially or entirely before they're even in and out. And so it, it, it makes it harder to have to build the anticipation for it. I remember knowing very little about what was happening in DC, but I can't remember whether that was because there just wasn't as much publicized or because me being relatively new to DC, I wasn't looking in the right places or I didn't know what things meant. I was sort of learning along the way. So I, I wish I had a better sense of it, but I don't, I just remember being generally excited um, in a way. I mean, I was excited for identity crisis too, but then having, having read it, the, the, the scope of it is, as you said, much smaller than it is for most of the other crisis events, all the other crisis events. So this one just felt bigger um, and I believe in the lead into Infinite Crisis was the first year of New York Comic Con too. So, um, like around 2006, I believe. Um, so I, I just remember leading up to and, and then particularly coming out of it, there was the excitement that was drummed up because I live here and was able to attend that con. And Dan DiDio was doing you know DC Nation panels and things like that, and they were dropping all sorts of hints. And so that felt really exciting. But I. I just don't recall the specifics no that's totally fine i mean again i i was able to confirm that original solicitation so they they did hide the ball uh, as far as what the title was and then as far as when the word actually got out i'm sure it was a mix i'm sure there were some who had figured it out or found out ahead of time and others like myself who were genuinely surprised when i saw it on on new comic book day but to whatever extent even just even just in terms of the solicitation to the extent that they made this a surprise I think it's fantastic. I do agree. I think these days it's next to impossible. And it's one of those things where either the publisher spoils it themselves and controls the message and tries to get some publicity out of it or it gets spoiled for. So, uh, but in any event, yeah, this was almost 20 years ago. So uh, it was a really, really exciting time. Uh, This special came out at the end of March, 2005. Then we had the six months of the lead in miniseries from April through September. And then infinite crisis number one dropped uh, in October, 2005. For me personally, this was the end of my senior year of high school into my freshman year of college. So a very formative, pivotal time in terms of my comic book reading and collecting. And I've talked about this a lot, including our last episode. I don't mean to be a broken record, but this was really the the height of, I don't want to say of my fandom, because honestly, over the course of doing this podcast, I feel like it's reached a whole new level, a whole new dimension, but certainly at the time, especially as far as me being dialed in to what was happening and and chomping at the bit for the next issue 
and the size of my pull list, like all of those things. This really was the height. I, there were very few DC books I wasn't getting at the time. I mean, I was all in on this. I cannot stress this enough. And and I was working at my local comic shop, and especially over that time, the, you know, the summer before college, it was just a really, really exciting time, personally and as a comic fan. And so I was I was really all all in on this, the special, and then the miniseries that followed. I was trying to remember. I maybe I reread all of this stuff once, either before, right before, during, or right after Infinite Crisis, but I've, I've not gone, if, if I even did that, and I certainly haven't gone back to it since that time. So it's, it's been a long while since I looked at this countdown special and, and all of these lead-in miniseries. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk more specifically, obviously, but just generally speaking, how did these hold up for you? Um, so it's very hard to answer that question, putting them all in one bucket. That's fair. That's four fair. Mini, yeah. <laughs> the four mini series are so different from one another. I, I agree with you in the sense that each one felt like it was building out a corner of the DC universe, particularly for me, corners that I hadn't really explored. I mean, if it wasn't sort of mainstream JLA and Teen Titan stuff, I, I really wasn't, uh, I wasn't familiar so uh that was exciting but each one kind of hit me in a different way um and as we sort of break them down i'll let you know what you know how i responded to each one originally and then how i responded to it now i will say for the most part i really did enjoy rereading them um i had not reread them since they originally came out um i had since gotten rid of all my single issues and i for whatever reason, I only bought two of the four miniseries in trade. Um, I had gotten the Rand Thanagar War and uh, and Villains United. Those were the two that I got. And I'm trying to remember why. <laughs> why those two and not the others. And I really can't remember. So I reordered I, or I ordered the, the two other trades and got to experience all of it, which was a ton of fun. It was a really a ton of fun. I wish I knew why I didn't order the other two. I, maybe I just didn't, I think I just didn't like them enough at the time to want to. Wait, so OMAC Project was one of the ones you, you didn't order. I didn't. Fascinating, because I, I, you know, we've talked multiple times about Greg Rucka, and I know we're both fans of his, right? That's, that's interesting. But if you remember, during our Rucka um, conversations, I didn't really hop fully on the Rucka train until a few years later the name at the time didn't mean much to me um, because he hadn't become the superstar that he is and there was something about the sort of spy espionage technology corner of the dc universe that just didn't hit me then the way that it does now and so i have a greater appreciation for what who rucket is as a writer and what he's done since then but didn't didn't stay with me from from the original reading. I hear you. And we also, we did an episode of another podcast that I did uh, called My Comic Shop Book Club, where we read the Greg Rucka detective run, which introduced right. Sasha, who of course plays a huge role in Checkmate. So I'm sure, yeah. you know, that probably landed more now that you had the backstory for her character. So that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I totally get that. Uh, I'll say, generally speaking, I enjoyed this reread. To your point, what I think this whole era, I mean, maybe that's 
you know, maybe that's too much. We're only talking about a half a year period here. But but still, this moment in D.C., it really did do a great job of showing you the scope, the breadth of the D.C. universe, where you have Villains United, of course, dealing with the, the, you know, the adversaries of the D.C. universe coming out of identity crisis, right, where word has gotten out now about how the Justice League had magically lobotomized Dr. Light and these other characters. And now the villains are organizing amongst themselves seeking protection, seeking retribution. So really picking up directly on, on those threads, but showing you the villain side of the DC universe. The Ranthanagar War, showing you that outer space sci-fi scale. And what's interesting is, and I'm, I'm doing the math on this because I know Hal Jordan is back in this period that we're talking about, uh, but we hadn't yet gotten into Sinestro Core War time, right? So I think exploring this, this pocket of the DC universe felt fresher then, right? In the years to come, we would get so much of that spacefaring adventure from the Jeff Johns Green Lantern run. But here, I, I think this was, uh, again, like a little bit of a, of a, of a different area to explore. The Ranthanagar War did pick up from uh, Adam Strange Planet Heist, the miniseries by Andy Diggle and Pasquale Ferry. Did you ever read that? I do. It's on my shelf. I'm looking at it right now. It's across from me on the shelf. It's really good. If I had more yeah. time, I was very, I, I almost was like, oh, should I reread this? But I'm like, you got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> you got to draw the line somewhere. But it's really good. I, I, Ranth Anagar War stands well enough on its own. I think they do a good job at the outset of establishing what had come before all of this business about Ran being transported into orbit near Thanagar and sparking this intergalactic war. Uh, but the Planet Heist miniseries was really great for any Adam Strange fans, uh, especially I know we had that recent Tom King miniseries, which I have not read yet, but for anyone who was really into that, you want more Adam Strange, that Planet Heist miniseries was great. I, I've been meaning to go back to that forever. I had the same thought. I, I remembered that it was a lead in to this miniseries and I thought, should I go back? And, and then I just, there was so much to read for this proper that I knew we were going to be talking about that I didn't, but I probably should at some point because I also remember it being yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, of course, Day of Vengeance dealing with the magical side of the DC universe where the Spectre is once again without a host and running amok, has been influenced and corrupted by Gene Loring Eclipso, who herself is being manipulated. And we learn more in Infinite Crisis about Psycho Pirate was pulling the strings. Uh, but Spectre declares war on magic and we have this ragtag, no pun intended since Ragman is included, <laughs> a bunch of magical characters <clears throat> waging this battle. Uh, against Spectre. And then, of course, the OMAC project dealing with, as you said, the spy espionage side and really following most closely from uh, the Countdown special and dealing with all of this business about Brother Eye, the satellite, and these this army of OMACs. And we'll unpack all of that. But I'll just say, again, overall, I enjoyed it. I thought all of the miniseries were very readable. You know, in other episodes we've done in this run, <laughs> so I talked about some of them being kind of dense and hard to get through. Yeah. Not the case here. I won't lie. It, it was almost the opposite in a couple of cases where some of them felt a little, a little light. Like Ranthanagar War, that Ivan Rice art, it's gorgeous, and there's some great action. The overall, felt a little light to me. I, I don't know that that necessarily needed six issues per se, right? But again, if you really have a deep connection to the Hawkman characters or to Adam Strange, you might feel differently. But for me, I felt like some of them maybe were a, a little bit on the light side. And then there's the other piece of this where, as the audience knows very well, the magical side of the DC universe doesn't necessarily light my fire, right? But I 
that doesn't mean these miniseries shouldn't exist, right? Like, I really do love the idea, even though some of them speak to me more than others. I really like the idea that there was like, hey, we are going to show you the scope of the DC universe and we are going to show you all four of these corners and how everything's going to hell uh, before it all, you know, converges in this infinite crisis. So again, even if I liked some of them more than others, I appreciated that they were all there and some of them are going to speak to other fans more than, than they did to me. And I, that's good. No, absolutely. And, and you and I've talked about this a number of times, the, the magic side of the DC universe, it doesn't light my fire generally either. Um, in fact, when I, when I'd finished reading all four miniseries, I, I was thinking about them in the aggregate and, and I realized none of these really lit my fire in a technical sense. Like I'm not a big outer space battle kind of person. I'm not the technology. I like traditional superheroics. So, you know, if it doesn't feature the, the JLA proper, I, I wouldn't expect to like it. But again, part of it was the discovery of the, the DC universe writ large. But what I really liked about these miniseries, they're for the most part, pretty character driven. And so no matter what sort of weird stuff is going on, um, the characters were interesting. So Day of Vengeance, right, was not really what I would normally pick up if it ha- if I knew it hadn't been a lead-in to the big event. But I found a lot of the characters really delightful. Um, I knew nothing about Detective Chimp, for instance. I thought he was hilarious. I thought the idea of it was sort of ridiculous but in a good way like it's just funny um same thing with with you know with ranthanagar wharf i mean again you know ivan rice's art is just just stunning and this is really before he became the superstar he would become with the green lantern books yeah yeah um but it's i mean it's gorgeous stuff um and so not only do you have adam strange who i knew next to nothing about and and the hawks um but You've got the Green Lantern Corps in the middle of it, you know, the Owens and the Tamaranians are in the middle of it. And, you know, so you've got enough, I, I think, cameos of characters I did know and have some some kind of connection to that I was able to to get in on it. And the same thing with with um, uh, uh, Villains United. I, I'm personally I'm of the mind that villains generally don't carry their own books beyond like miniseries i think villains work best in the context of the antagonist for the hero's you know arc um but you took the secret six and you essentially turned them into anti-heroes and so you've got levels of of you know a, a villainy where you've got luther's um secret society who are real villains as you said motivated <laughs> by um, retribution against what was done to them by zatanna and um, and then you've got the Secret Six, who by default need to be more heroic. And they're a weird bunch of characters, but they work. There are relationships forming. There are backstabbings. There, I mean, there's all kinds of fun stuff. So even though on paper I shouldn't have been as into any of these series, I found that I that I was. I was I was really into it. That's awesome to hear. There really is a charm to. I would say all of these, especially, especially Villains United and Day of Vengeance, because you are dealing with these unlikely relationships and groups and, and more obscure characters. And so I think it, you have kind of a, a 
more of a blank canvas, right, for the creators and for us as as the audience. So, yeah. you know, those in particular, I, I did think were were quite fun. The other the other big compliment that I have to pay them, and I and we are going to circle back to that countdown special because, yeah, I will say out of everything we read, far and away, I enjoyed that the most. I thought that was so Same. strong. Really, really loved it. Held up great. Uh, I just thought Same. it was such an engrossing read. So I want to talk about that. But the miniseries themselves, and people might might disagree with me on this, but I, I guess going into the reread, I was saying to myself, I, I really wonder how well these are going to hold up generally, but more specifically as their own stories and not just right. as lead-ins. And I have to say, and I want to get your take, like I felt that they they do work on their own. Yes, they are dealing with elements, some books more so than others. I mean, Rand Anagar War is really doing its own thing. And then at the end, you have this intergalactic or interdimensional rift that opens and you see the hand coming through. And yeah, when we get into Infinite Crisis, we'll find out that's Alexander Luther trying to reshape the multiverse. And we'll also find out in Infinite Crisis what Alexander Luther and Superboy Prime were doing behind the scenes in all of these books. And right. for example, in the space side of things, Superboy Prime was rearranging planets and things like that. But but still, you can read Ranthanagar War and you have all the pieces that you need. And and I think, yeah, is it a 100% complete story? No, because it ends on a cliffhanger to this larger event. But for the most part, it wasn't, I didn't feel like these stories were just about the table setting. And so I enjoyed that about them. How did, how did you feel? Um, same. I mean, I think to varying degrees, they sort of ended on cliffhangers. There were some that had more definitive endings. I think Day of Vengeance had a little bit more of a definitive ending than than the others but that didn't bother me because again at the time i knew that they were the lead-ins to the crisis event i knew that on the reread this time as well i also remembered um and and didn't have to look very far because they're on my shelf but each one of these miniseries also had a like an oversized one shot that came out in the middle of infinite crisis yeah to sort of wrap and they were by the same creative teams and they were designed to sort of wrap up that particular storyline. The disappointment for me was none of those are included in the trade paperbacks. Yeah, they collected them in a companion trade, if I remember correctly. Oh, is that what they did? Yeah. And so we'll, we'll uh, so I did not reread them for this because I want to read them in their actual, in their proper place. So we'll hit that next time. But yeah, they collected those because I, I would have to double check this. I feel yeah. like they probably, they probably pumped out the trades of the six issue miniseries quickly. For people yeah. to catch up, and so that that might have been why, because it would have been months later before the the actual one shots came out. But uh, yeah, I know, yeah, and it was a companion trade, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and and if that's <laughs> the stated purpose of these miniseries is to to lead into the main event, then I don't really have a problem with it. I you know again, I wonder to what extent the editors and writer are are thinking about how these will read years and years later. I think the the focus has to be on, you know, what can we do to excite our audience now? As you said, you know, sell books, boost sales, but what can we do to tell this story now? And however it presents later, we'll, we'll guess worry about it later or not. Um, so yes, reading it now, almost 20 years later, it probably would have felt a little bit more satisfying if there were definitive endings to each of the miniseries, but that's just not what they were designed to do. So I, I can forgive that very, very easily because what they do, what they're designed to do, they do, and they do it well. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. 
now in its 40th year. This multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail-order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail-order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the AcmeCast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's interesting. I would, and I don't know. I would imagine from the editorial side, <clears throat> there wasn't much concern about these standing on their own. I, again, I could be totally wrong, but I attribute to whatever extent these books do work on their own as, again, not totally complete stories, but mostly complete stories. I attribute that to the creators involved. Uh, and I think they gave these individual stories integrity despite the larger purpose that they had to serve. Uh, but regardless of where it comes from, I, again, I was I was pleasantly surprised as I was reading to find it. And the other thing too, <clears throat> and I wanted to ask you, uh, I was going to save this for the end, but we'll talk about it now. Uh, I, some of this I had remembered and some I had forgotten, but the these miniseries, they do they do broaden the scope and they they introduce or reintroduce new characters and certainly new teams and dynamics. And so after Infinite Crisis, Villains United continued in the form of Secret Six, first a miniseries, then an yep. ongoing, and then another ongoing in the New 52, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Day of Vengeance continued post-Infinite Crisis as Shadow Pact, an ongoing series right, that lasted right, a couple right. of years. OMAC Project continued post-Infinite Crisis as the Checkmate ongoing series, which lasted for a couple of years. And Ranthanagar War didn't, if I'm not mistaken, didn't have as direct a follow-up, but a little while later, there was the Ranthanagar Holy War miniseries. So those threads were continuing to to develop as well. I've read none of those, which <laughs> which is, you know, like that's the, that's the funny thing. I, I, but I don't know if that really, I don't know if that's a, a criticism of the original miniseries or I think that probably speaks more to just kind of where I was as a fan coming out of Infinite Crisis, um, not to go too far afield. And I've talked about this in, on various podcasts over the years, but after Infinite Crisis, I did make the decision to stop reading monthly and I switched to trade. And at the time it made the most sense for all of the reasons that we always make the arguments for reading, <laughs> reading the trades. And as we're sitting here, I see your massive, you know, graphic novel library behind me. I know, you know what I'm talking about here. Um, but the, I, there was, it, it did lose a little something for me because I just, I wasn't as plugged in. There wasn't that immediacy. There wasn't that, uh, you know, that excitement that, that I was getting. Now, I think that was also due in part to, uh, I guess the way I felt coming out of Infinite Crisis. I, you know, I, I reread it a few years ago. We did a Patreon episode about it. And of course I'll be rereading it for next week's episode. Uh, and I think I've really come to appreciate Infinite Crisis a lot more now than I did at the time. I think if I'm not, if I'm remembering correctly, I feel like coming out of Infinite Crisis, it just felt like, okay. Like, I don't know that it quite lived up to all of that excitement, all of that buildup, all of that anticipation. And that's not necessarily a fault of the book. It might have just been like there was all of this buildup and my expectations were were somewhere that they shouldn't have been. I don't know. But anyway, coming out of Infinite Crisis, I think my enthusiasm had been dampened a little bit. 
and and I was also just interested in reading in a different way. And so my whole reading and collecting career, you know, kind of shifted a little bit. So I wasn't as dialed in. And that might in part account for why I never read any of those follow-ups. I don't know. Even now, even though I enjoyed these miniseries, I won't lie. It's not like I'm sitting here being like, Scott, when we're done, I'm going to pull up that app and I'm going to dig into the Shadow Pack series. I don't, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't that moved to do it, but I say all of that to say like, yeah, it was setting up Infinite Crisis, but it was also broadening the DCU. And then you had these teams that, that continued. So I, I think it was building in a number of ways. Did you ever read any of those follow-ups? And, and if not, are you, are you moved to read any of them now? No and no. Okay. Um, oh. <laughs> um, no, I felt I felt very very similar to the way that you just described, which is <laughs> I was I was satisfied with the the miniseries that led up. I was excited to have learned about some of these new characters, but uh, outside of the context of building toward the big event that I knew I was going to read, I didn't really want to spend the time or the money to continue with them. Plus um, DC's publishing uh, strategy coming out of infinite crisis to me pointed in a different direction, which was as we're going to find out the 52 weekly series um, and this sort of one year later um, branding on a lot of their major books where um, some of the major heroes, the Trinity included um Basically, we're out of commission for a year. The 52 limited series uh, filled in the gap of that year. But but essentially, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman are off the board and and their books pick up a year later and the status quo has changed. And, and I was far more interested in finding out what that was all about. So I was still reading a lot of the major hero titles and then the 52 weekly series. And so that's where I really put my attention and my money and um, was was in that. So I just didn't have the bandwidth, I think, to factor in all those other series. And at the, this stage, I just don't see myself wanting to go back and, and check them. I don't know what I could possibly derive from them. Gotcha. I know. I understand. So I want to circle back and talk more about the individual miniseries, though. I, you know, I won't lie for some of them. I don't like have a ton to say, but we'll we'll talk about it. I Right, unsurprisingly, I have the most when we get back to OMAC and that sacrifice story. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't. There's not a ton of Superman in terms of what we're talking about here, and when what there is, I, I don't, I don't love. It's not my favorite, but we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about it. But we have to get back to this countdown special because yes. this is what kicked it off, and I think really, regardless of how anyone feels about identity crisis, and we talked about it at length last week, but I, I think this special does a really great job of bridging that into this larger mega arc that we're getting within DC and again, continuing along a lot of those themes. So this is a 80 page one shot for a dollar. So they were really, they wanted everyone in on this and it was hard to pass up and it follows Ted Cord, blue beetle as he is conducting this investigation where he's discovered that money or with the help of Oracle money has been siphoned uh, from his company. Uh, one of his warehouses gets hit uh, there are multiple attempts on his life, and he pursues this investigation throughout the DC universe, seeking help of his supposed allies, and is largely dismissed, with the exception of Blue Beetle, his best friend, who even Blue Beetle initially has other more important things to do. He has to go film a commercial, but he eventually circles back around. 
Uh, Wonder Woman shows him the most courtesy and respect as he's making his way through. But for the most part, again, he is largely dismissed. What was interesting to me about that in particular, and when I say this thematically really felt like a continuation from Identity Crisis, one of the things that I, I think Identity Crisis did masterfully was showed really this community aspect on both the, the hero side and the villain side, that there are these real personalities and personality conflicts and tensions and, and hierarchies. And as I was reading this, just like you see in Identity Crisis, how the villain community doesn't think highly of Captain Boomerang, for example. Now we're on the other side here, and I don't mean, I, you know, for any Blue Beetle fans, I don't mean <laughs> it's like the, the Captain Boomerang of the heroes, but, but you know, you kind of see that, that lack of respect uh, that that he's met with as he's making his way through, and eventually, spoilers. I think people are well familiar with the, with these story points at, at, at this point in time. But uh, eventually, he he follows his investigation all the way to Checkmate headquarters and discovers that Max Lord, uh, the former organizer of the Bwahaha version of the Justice League, uh, is the Black King of Checkmate and has been behind uh, everything that Ted Court has been investigating. And it it ends with Beatles brutal murder at the hands of of Max Lord. So that's sort of the broad strokes, the overview of of that countdown special. So I mean, toss it to you. Where would you like to go first here? Um, well, first of all, you know, you mentioned it's an 80-page issue for a dollar. So clearly the company is thinking about future profits and not trying to actually make the money on this because I'm sure they lost money on it. Um, but they also marketed it by having a cover drawn by Jim Lee and then painted on top of that by Alex Ross. So they're taking, you know, two probably of the, the most accomplished artists at the time and probably still to today and having them collaborate on this cover that features in the foreground, Batman holding a, a body and the other superheroes looking on, um, you know, in dismay. And so, you know, there's a lot of intrigue. If they can't sell you this issue based on all of that, then they're doing everything wrong. And I think that they did everything right because I think this issue sold incredibly, incredibly well. And once you've read it, I think it does make you want to continue on wherever the story is going to lead. Um, I think you mentioned a couple of points about the story itself that are, that are really important to note. Um, number one, Blue Beetle sort of rose to whatever prominence he was going to achieve. I think through that Bwahaha Justice League incarnation. Um, and because the tone of that book was much more humorous, I think by the time we got to this Infinite Crisis special, we forgot that Blue Beetle is actually a really accomplished detective. Um, he's essentially, you know, he's Batman without the tragedy. Um, you know, he is rich so he has access to all these toys and all this equipment and all this beetle themed instead of bat themed um and just a sort of lighter outlook on life in general but he is an accomplished detective more than capable of trying to solve this mystery and the fact that he doesn't get the kind of cooperation from his fellow heroes um i think speaks to what his place was in the dc universe at the time he was kind of dismissed kind of a joke you know other than booster gold with with whom he has a friendship he's kind of a nothing and i don't remember what was done with blue beetle up until this point i, I can't remember him at any place of prominence in, in the years leading up to this nor um, nor can so, i nor can i did you yeah. did you read that 
Keith Giffen, J.M.D. Mateus, Kevin McGuire, Justice League run? Um, not in its entirety, but I have the, the trade of the first arc of it, which is just phenomenal. And then some of the later entries that they made in, in miniseries form, there was one called like uh, formerly known as the Justice League or, mm-hmm. or I can't believe it's not the Justice League. Same creative team. And I just found them wildly entertaining. And those characters really just wonderful. Um, but they have that that place in DC that doesn't always translate well when you try to insert them into other stories. Like we're coming off of Identity Crisis, one of the darkest stories and this this sort of era being one of the darkest periods in dc which i think infinite crisis proper actually comments on in a, in a sort of meta commentary way um and so to take the tone of that wahaha and insert it here i think would have been really off-putting um so instead i appreciate that they took blue beetle and made him a little bit more serious there's still a little bit of humor but for the most part he's a straight up uh, he's a straight up detective, which led me to believe at the time that they were bringing Blue Beetle back to some sort of prominent role and, and putting him in the same way that they did for Elongated Man and in Identity Crisis. And instead, they dispatch him at the end. I mean, brutally, it was it was quite shocking. I mean, he's shot in the head. And although that the panel where he shot is is all in silhouette, I mean, it's detailed enough for for a silhouette. Um, and that shock was unexpected, but I found really entertaining and interesting. And I, and I really wanted to find out what was going on. And of course, to have Max Lord be the mastermind at the center of it made a lot of sense in context of the Wahaha era, because Max Lord was the, the sort of benefactor of that whole era. So I, I was just completely on board through this whole thing. I thought Blue Beetle was a great focal character to follow. Um, I, I thought it reminded us what was great about him. And then in true DC fashion, the way to continue reminding us what makes him great is to kill him. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. So uh, I guess a couple of things. So I never, I still to this day have not read that Wahaha era of the Justice League. And, and Justice League wise, I would say that's really my lone remaining true gap because especially over the course of our crisis on multiple earths episode reading a selection of silver and bronze age justice league stories again i really only scooped a cup of water out of the ocean but i at least have a sense right of those eras and from graham morrison forward i've either read all of it or or at least some arcs and i'm familiar with them but that period of time post-crisis before the morrison big seven era uh, ha- has long been a gap. And I will say, unlike the other uh, stories that came out of uh, Infinite Crisis that we were just talking about, reading this does make me more intrigued to go back and check out some of that. So at, at some point for some podcast, I'm sure I will, because I, I am curious. But to the credit of Johns and Winnick and, and Rucka, I, I really have to to give them a ton of credit because I did not have the background, the history, the familiarity, the affinity for that version of the Justice League knew next to nothing about Max Lord or Blue Beetle. As we've talked about in The Death of Superman, that's the version of the Justice League that we're dealing with. So I had met those characters. I had some familiarity with, but it wasn't like I really had any attachment. And despite that, I was all in on this story. So the fact that it worked as well as it did without that connection 
I think really speaks volumes. And I know I'm a broken record about this, but I, I, I love me a point of view character. And in most of these events, we don't have that. And here you follow Blue Beetle throughout this whole story. And it, I learned who he was and I learned what he was about. And I was invested in his investigation and his story. And to see it end the way it does, when we get to those final pages and we, we, we have his, his uh, you know, inner narration and he starts to say, again, my name is Ted Cord. You know, I'm the blue beetle. I'm the second blue beetle. I hope there'll be a third. It's like, you know where this is going. And it just, <laughs> you know, it, it just hits you. I, I thought it was so effective. No, and I, and I agree. And I, and I realized too, that for the sake of some listeners who may also be unfamiliar with the blue beetle character, we are talking about the Ted Cord version of the character and not the Jaime Reyes character who would come later, who's going to be featured in a blockbuster movie in not that long. And so if you're thinking it's going to be that blue beetle, it's not this sort of paved the way for the creation of that blue beetle. You know, we had to get rid of the, the one incarnation so the next one could rise. And as you've hinted at, um, yeah. So that's, that's, I think important if, if people were <laughs> going to read this, expecting it to be the blue beetle from the movie. It's not. Yeah. Oh, Scott, how kind of you to call it a blockbuster movie. Boy, that's generous. Warner brothers. Thanks. Well, they thank well, you. Uh, a big budget movie. How about big budget? <laughs> Got a big budget. All right. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, but you know, kind of the flip of what I was just saying. And again, I know you don't have the history with the that version of the Justice League. So I guess this is more for our audience here, because this came up when we talked about identity crisis last week. This this notion of hey, identity crisis is telling you that those those silver and bronze age stories that you read. Uh, featuring the Justice League, there was more going on behind the scene, between the scenes, between the panels, right? Uh, in terms of this dark history and in terms of the actions that the Justice League had taken against these villains. So all those stories you read where the villains were silly and ineffectual, this is why, because the Justice League did stuff to them. And similarly here, Max even says, he explicitly articulates, like, why do you think I kept the League so ineffectual for all of those years? And so I wonder, just as I wondered last week about fans of the Bronze Age Justice League, I wonder too, <clears throat> for real diehard fans of, of the Giffen, DiMatteis, Maguire era of Justice League, how this lands with them. Is it the sort of thing where it, you know, does it ruin those old stories? Like, can you go back and read those old stories and not have evil Max Lord and Ted Cord with his brain splattered all over the wall in your head? Like, I, you know, I genuinely wonder, like, not having that attachment. We're not put off by that, right? It's just like, oh, wow, like those kind of silly stories that we know a little bit about, this explains so much about them. Like, it's so cool. But if you were really in on that, I do wonder. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I would imagine that the folks who grew up in that later Silver Age and Bronze Age and were reading those stories as kids where essentially the good guys and the bad guys were unambiguously good and evil, respectively. Um you know, there is a comfort to that, that you know, that's that sort of traditional superhero storytelling going all the way back to, the, for the most part, the Golden Age. I just think, I remember thinking at the time, and, and it's coming back to me now, that this era, because it's so meta, um, is looking at the entire publishing history of, of DC and, and saying, essentially, like, our audiences are more mature than they had been, even if they were the same age, their the story, the, the modes of storytelling have evolved. 
And so to continue telling those same stories again with unambiguous good and bad um, just doesn't work for a 21st century audience. And so to take your heroes and to make them more complex, more nuanced, um, to take your villains and make them in some ways kind of relatable. I can get behind, you know, being uh, really angry at the idea of heroes messing with your mind. It's one thing to imprison you and you know punish you for your crimes, but to change fundamentally who you are and how you behave, that seems like a violation over and above. And so to have villains acting on that uh, makes them a lot more relatable. And I think we, I think we really were, I think we were ready for it. And I think to, to call back to an era of justice league and say, we know how this presents and you can still read it that way um, unironically if you want. Um, but for the sake of a 21st century audience, we're going to kind of explain why some of the villains were goofy and why the justice league was a comedy book for a while. And, you know, kind of bridge all of all of that together to create what is in essence, this much more cohesive DC universe, both sort of in, in breadth across the universe, but also in the depth of time that, that the stories are unfolding from, you know, 1938 to what was at the time, the present. Well said. And it's funny, you know, I, and I, when I bring up these questions, I guess I'm, I'm speaking for, for those fans, right. With those attachments, to those eras, but you know, again, they, they might not have an, an issue with this as, as I, as I'm speculating. So I'm sure there's a mix, but your, your points are all well taken. And, and the other thing I'll say kind of in defense of shining this kind of light on these older stories, whether we're talking the satellite era or even the, the you know, the, the international uh, version of the justice league right. is that at least it's referencing those stories. It's, bringing those stories back to light, to prominence, actually, you know, doing something with that material as opposed to them being these runs, these errors that are just kind of there in the past and you can look at your back issues. So again, kind of regardless of where you land on this, it's like, hey, at least it's incorporating these periods of of the DC universe and sort of making it all feel of a piece. Again, for better or worse, because I think what Identity Crisis and what this Countdown special, like what they're doing, it it is... It is bringing those stories into the fold, and you might not like the way they do that, but they are doing that. So I think that's a you know a really interesting piece of all of this. And uh, again, as far as following Beetle throughout this, and the special again, eighty pages, and it's not unlike the miniseries themselves. It has table setting to do. Right, it is teeing up each of the miniseries to follow, and some are are more direct than others. Like we said, I think. Countdown really leads very directly into the OMAC project, uh, following Max Lord as the Black King of Checkmate. And you see, especially as we get into OMAC, how he has really usurped the traditional hierarchy and organizational structure of Checkmate, this spy organization within the DC universe, where we have, you know, the Black Kings and Queens, and they're supposed to work in unison. And you get the sense like he has just really set himself up as the authoritarian figure of this. Uh, and then, of course, the further revelations about the Brother Eye satellite that had been created by Batman to spy on the heroes of the DC universe to keep them in check after he realized what they had done, not only to Dr. Light, but also to himself. We'll talk more about that. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there you really get that very clear continuation. <clears throat> Some of the connection points, the other miniseries are a little bit more tangential, but I, I still thought 
I still thought they worked for the most part in the context of this. So just as an example, when Blue Beetle is seeking Martian Manhunter's help, they're interrupted by this communication from Adam Strange talking about this war that's broken out between Ran and Thanagar. And, uh, you know, so it, it might feel a little, a little tacked on, but it, again, it gives you this glimpse into what's going on throughout the rest of the DC universe in a way that, you know, because you, you can envision a, a different kind of a countdown special that really was far more concerned with setting up the individual miniseries. And, and here you were really, it was really Ted's story. And then you were touching on these other aspects. Um, and I think thematically something like that interruption about the Ranthanagar war it fit in exactly with with what was going on in terms of Ted's story of being dismissed, of being overlooked. Like literally as he's seeking Marshman under help, something more important comes up that of course has has captured his interest far more so than Blue Beetle's plight here. Uh, so I thought that worked well. The, the business about lightning striking uh, Ted's house, and of course that's what puts Blue Beetle in the hospital, or uh, Booster Gold in the hospital, and then, uh, you know, Ted realizes it was like lightning came down from the sky and he should talk to Captain Marvel and he brings the scarab to Fawcett City. And then that leads him to the door to the Rock of Eternity. And he's talking with the wizard. Th- that to me felt like, all right, guys, <laughs> that was yeah. a little, like, uh, 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 you know, again, now that might just be my, my personal feelings about the magical side of the DC universe. That felt the less, the least, uh, I think, organic as far as the, the, the proceedings overall, but it still works. No, and and you're right about that. I think that the overall, the planning leading into this issue, the issue itself, out into the miniseries, out into Infinite Crisis, and then post-Infinite Crisis, I think the planning was really, really good. Um, In the introduction to the Villains United trade, there's a, a sort of, you know, a sort of recap page, although it's several pages, and they flash sort of a panel from a previous comic, fairly recent, and they tell you from Teen Titans issue whatever or from Wonder Woman issue whatever. And then there's a little paragraph summary of what happened in that. Just a, a brief thing. And you can really see how so many stories from so many different titles were dovetailing into what would become this, this countdown special. And so then the, it's up to this special to feature not each one of those mentions, but certainly those sort of four corners of the DC universe, in addition to the sort of center main superhero, you know, feature piece. Um, And so I give them a lot of credit for just planning it well, but I agree with you. I think that you could have broken this down into, you know, four 20 page sections, each one uh, focusing on the corner of the DC universe that would later become one of these and they didn't do that and i applaud them for not doing that because they were able to tell a much more linear story that i felt was much more compelling with just hints that things are going on elsewhere and if you never chose to follow up on those i don't think you really lose that much um but if you choose to follow those paths into these miniseries i think the experience of reading the event becomes a lot richer because the main the main you know, crisis event is going to follow up on those, but I don't think I, I don't think that you'd really be lost if you didn't experience them. Which is not a I don't I know that sounds like sort of a knock at them, like it's non essential reading, but but I think that that's the design of a really good line wide event where 
you don't want your readership to have to pay for every single issue across the entire line that even mentions the big event. You want them to explore the corners that are appealing to them and still feel like they got the full story in the main crossover title. So in looking at just sort of the macro design of it, I, I really appreciate where it's going. And so that's one of the reasons I think this issue was really successful for me and so enjoyable. Uh, like you, of all the parts of this entire crossover, that issue is the one I've reread the most. And gotcha. it still holds up. It's still so fun. It's still intriguing. Even after I know the big reveal, you know, now I'm looking for the clues of like what was dropped early on that then pays off later, knowing knowing the payoff. So, yeah, I can't say enough good things about this issue. I just think it's I think it's masterful. You got three of the best you know writers in the business. Certainly at the time, they were all at the peak of their their respective powers. You've got a a, a slew of phenomenal artists all of whom were doing just crazy good work in in dc at the time so there's really not much to not sell this issue yeah no i I agree with all of that and again going back to the miniseries like that was one of the things that i was struck by that like we said before that they do largely stand on their own and that they're not yes there are crumbs that are that are sprinkled in there that are important and villains united i think one of the the biggest pieces critical pieces uh that you you want to make sure you you're you're picking up on as you're going through right is that for a period in the dcu we had the former president of the united states lex luther running around in his green war suit and then we had this black clad lex luther who was organizing the villains and there was a little stretch there where it seemed like there was a discrepancy in terms of what's going on with Lex. He seems to be presented in two different ways. And then in, and I believe it's in villains United. I think this is the first instance where it's like, no, there's two of them. And then of course we find out that the one who's been organizing the villains is actually Alexander Luther in disguise. But obviously that that's a very, that's a key piece of information, but big picture. And I agree with you. I think for them, maybe with the exception of OMAC, but, but even there, it's like you, if you skipped any of these, you, you can still go into Infinite Crisis and you can follow it. It's mostly, I feel like mostly what these miniseries are doing are just showing you, again, how everything is falling apart across the DC universe. Magic is, there's this war on magic. Intergalactic war has, has broken out. Uh, you know, we have this army of Omags hunting people and uh, and and the villains have have united and have organized. And as long as you kind of have those broad strokes, I think you're, you're good to go. And then going back to that countdown special, since it is 80 pages, you know, it's, it's, almost the equivalent of four, like it's almost its own six issue miniseries, you know, yeah. it's basically a four, the equivalent of a four issue miniseries. So I think that too. And I, like we were saying, I think just the structure of it was very sophisticated given what this could have very easily been. So I give them credit. And then the last thing I'll say on the, uh, just kind of like the planning side of it, regardless of how much was editorially driven, I have always gotten the sense about this era from reading interviews with the creators, guys like, Johns, Rucka, Winnick, Jeff Loeb. It really seemed like there was a friendship and a collaboration. And I think even before we got into these these more, you know, more strictly outlined crossovers and events and things like that, you kind of always, there were little threads throughout the books in, in this era where it felt like they were building off of what the other one was doing. Uh, even, as I'll talk about this more next week, but in the Infinite Crisis, Back Matter, uh, Jeff Johns talks about how, as he recalls, it was Jeff Loeb who suggested, hey, 
why don't you use those four characters who went off into the paradise dimension at the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths? So the like maybe the most critical piece of of, of Infinite mm-hmm. Crisis, you know, came from from one of these one of these guys who were writing the books, and there was this friendship there. So I think even though clearly this is so mapped out and so planned and obviously a, a huge editorial piece, I do think on the creative side, or at least I've always gotten the sense that there was that friendship, cooperation, collaboration. I think that comes through. I think to the point that, to the extent that any of this feels organic, I think it comes from that. I think you're right, because if you if you look at this era, like what other era of mainstream superhero comics can you remember having so many writer collaborations? I mean, it's not unusual, especially in an issue this size, to have multiple artists, but... It's not that common other than, you know, there are certain writing teams, you know, the partnerships, you know, Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray are a team. Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning are, are, are a team. Not but, anymore. Oh, no, well, not anymore. But for, for years they had been writing together. You know, there, there were just partnerships. But to have three individual superstar writers collaborating on the same project. And when we get to 52, you'll see it's, again, a, a collaboration of multiple writers um, who are, you know, each one has their specialty and their, you know, the, the mode in which they sort of choose to write and characters they sort of gravitate towards. But this was, a re- I feel like this is a really unusual time in which the, the writers were able to, I say, put their egos aside, because I don't think, I don't really think it's that, but just sort of you know, their individual writing assignments, they still were able to do. And then like a brain trust, like a, like a group of architects who were sort of building the future of the DC universe. And I mean, the names that you rattled off, like it doesn't get better than that at this, at this time in comics. I mean, these are absolute masters of their crafts or people who are sort of working towards becoming masters of their craft who, who, who are pretty close and I think that's a lot of why this issue is is so successful. And then to have some of them go off and write their own miniseries. And then, of course, Jeff Johns, who would write, you know, the Crisis miniseries itself. And it, it, it's just, you're right. I think there's something that felt more connected, that felt more collaborative about this, because I think it was. Absolutely. You know, when, when as you're talking about that brain trust idea, of course, the triangle era Superman books come to mind where you had that level of planning and cooperation among the teams and that, you know, for, for years, there was, of course, the brand new day era of Amazing Spider-Man, where similarly, you had that kind of brain trust. And then what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, 52, right, where you had Morrison, Johns, Rucka and Wade, right, all working together. And yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's something to to be said for that. But yeah, uh, I want to make sure we get into the Superman of it all here. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. 
Aw Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw yeah. yeah. So we go again following, I think, the most direct thread from the countdown special, right? Where we find out that Max Lord is pulling these strings. And between the special and more so the, the OMAC Project miniseries, what we find out is that he has uh, wrestled control over this Brother Eye satellite away from Batman. Um, and additionally, he... <coughs> In, in hitting Max's, not Max's, uh, Ted's warehouse the and stealing kryptonite, turns out that was just a cover, but rather there was this EMP device that was had not yet been delivered <laughs> to the warehouse that could be used against the OMAX, and and, and Max was trying to, uh, to to get ahead of that. And so that kind of, you know, brings us into this, into this OMAC project miniseries here. And, you know, Max's motivation here, it's, it seems to be driven by this idea that comes up a lot, this notion that power can't be entrusted to these godlike beings, that humanity needs to be in control. Uh, of course, ironically, Max himself is a metahuman, and he has the ability to, as they as they describe it, push minds. Um, and we'll see, we see it in the, in the countdown special where he forces Ted to drop the gun, uh, and he gets a nosebleed when, when he, where Max gets the nosebleed when he's doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that seems to be, you know, this driving motivation here. Um, and again, thematically really pays off really nicely with what had just come before an identity crisis, because that book showed you, okay, these people who can erase memories and rewrite minds and change personalities, well, they are employing that power and they are arguably misusing that power, right? So we need to step in. We need to have the means to to stop them. And you know, at the end of that special, he offers you know the choice is join or die, right? And he, what was what, the other thing about this? I know I said I was done with the special, but the other thing about <laughs> it is just that Ted is positioned as just this ultimate underdog, right? He is seeing these connection points. He is pursuing this investigation, and uh, you know, it's not like he has no friends or allies throughout the DC universe. But again, he is again, largely dismissed or or at least underestimated. And it's Max who seems to have placed the most faith in him, right, to figure this out and to offer him a place. And, you know, of course, Ted refuses. But uh, again, I think just such a such a powerful moment in it. Oh, this was the other thing I wanted to say, especially building off of identity crisis. So we spend a lot of time last week talking about the women in refrigerators trope, and I'm not going to rehash that whole thing. We talked about it. But I have, I, it's interesting because I've seen here and there people criticizing Ted's death in this special um, as just, you know, a cheap plot point, right? For fans of the character to, to see Ted meet his end like that. And, you know, everyone has their own opinion as always. But I, especially having just looked at Identity Crisis again and spent a lot of time reading about the women in refrigerators argument and, and really considering it, there's a vast difference, I feel, between what is done to sue, right, in Identity Crisis and the reasons for which it is done versus what we see here where we follow, to, like, this is Ted's story. Yes, it ends the way it does, 
but you are with Ted. You learn everything you need to learn about him. You see how all of this is affecting him. He is driving the story. And and then, yes, he meets that end. But again, I certainly would not put them in the same category because I really feel like this is, uh, you know, maybe this is the sort of, <laughs> the kind of treatment that that we would want to see for, again, female characters, right, in other instances, right? But so, I don't know, that was kind of the other thing that was kicking around as I was reading this. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're looking at it in the context of the issue itself, then yeah, Ted is the driving force of this story, and so whatever happens to him is to further his own story. But if you look at it in the larger DC Universe context, his death is the catalyst for what the other heroes are going to do moving forward. So you could look at it as, you know, they only killed him in order to motivate other characters to do what they're going to do. Um, I think it reads differently when it is a female character who is offed in order to further male characters stories. I think that's really what's at the heart of that whole fridging notion. Um, whereas when the male character dies, even if it is to further other, you know, other male character stories, um, it just doesn't have that's it doesn't have that same feeling for me I mean, because again the, the you know the whole idea is that it's a knock on females it is it is a a way of saying that females are only important in a story if they you know advance the male hero's story and i i never felt like even in the grand scheme of things that that's what was happening here i mean there have to be inciting incidents in stories and Sometimes those inciting incidents are a death or an injury or you know something horrible has to happen to force the characters to act. And I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have that problem here. Maybe if if they had used a, a female character as the centerpiece, I might have felt differently. But you know, we have what we have, so. I yeah, no, I mean, and your your point is well taken. It's like yes, this this does become a motivator for the characters moving beyond this story, but in the context of this one, it, you see the fulfillment of Ted's quest. And I feel like that's yeah. kind of, that's a, a major distinction, right? Where you, you're following him and he's concluded his investigation. He's figured out what he needed to figure out. Uh, he's really kind of come to the end of, of there was a journey here and we've reached the the end of it, even though that, yes, the, the death itself will be used as his plot point to push forward other stories uh, as, as we make our way. But uh, and it helps to establish Max Lord as the the mastermind and to start to showcase what it is he can do. I mean, the fact that he had metahuman powers, that was new. We didn't know that. <laughs> um, and given what he's going to do to Superman uh, in, in the sacrifice crossover, we need that lead up. I think we need to see him getting worse and worse to, to, to do more heinous things as the story goes on. And so this is just the beginning. Um, and, and yeah, it works for me. And, you know, I, I'd be talking about how everyone is kind of dismissive of, of Ted as he's investigating, but I, I think, A, yes, that points to the way most of the other characters see him generally, but also it does track because all of the characters, they've got their own stuff going on here. You know, I'll use Batman maybe as the biggest example where Ted yeah. goes to the Batcave to, to ask for Bruce, Bruce's help uh, because in following the... The, the money trail, right? There was a reference in one of the documents, the OMAC project, right? And he mentions this to, to Batman and, you know, Batman wants nothing to do with him. And it's heartbreaking. You know, we get Ted's narration and he's talking about how Bruce has these mementos of all of his adventures 
as Batman, but nothing from his time on their version of the Justice League. Uh, you know, and, and it's kind of heartbreaking. And, and Bruce really doesn't have time for him. But we, we know, you know, that or I guess at this point we are we are learning that he knows what was done to him by the Justice League. Because coming out of Identity Crisis, there's this open question, which we talked about, with both Batman and Superman. How much do they know about what the League did to the villains and what the League did to Batman? And with Superman in particular, it's this idea, well, he hears what he wants to hear sort of thing. And as we move through these other stories, it becomes a lot clearer as far as what exactly each of them know. But I think in this Countdown special, this is really the first instance that it's becoming clear Bruce knows what was done to him. And that's the motivator behind spying on them. And then in the OMAC project, he, there's that conversation in the watchtower. It's like with Superman and Wonder Woman. And I think Booster is there at that point as well, where he's explaining, like he knows what was done to him. Uh, and you see these, you get to see kind of how he pieced that together, right? There are moments where he was in similar positions in battle or things like that. And things were triggering, you know, triggering his memory. So we're, we're seeing that piece of it unfold. Then in the middle of the OMAC project, this was, the, I don't know, like the ballsiest choice I feel like a publisher can make where, <laughs> hey, <laughs> we're doing this big event coming up. We have four lead-in miniseries. Now, look, as you and I have talked about, you don't have to read them all, but still, there's four lead-in miniseries. And by the way, in the middle, in between issues three and four <laughs> of one of them, you go off and, <laughs> and you buy these four other issues where Max Lord pushes Superman's mind and turns him into this killing machine where he is experiencing these visions. He thinks he's seeing Brainiac with Lois, Darkseid with Lois, Doomsday with Lois, and he's defending her. And as we find out, it's actually Batman he is pummeling and really just doing an, a number on him. And this is building, of course, to the massive payoff with Wonder Woman and what we'll, we'll talk about. But just, you know, I don't know, just as far as this decision to shoehorn this crossover in the middle of a miniseries. So what, how do you feel about that? Uh, you know, I don't think I saw it as clearly at the time because each, each series was its own thing. You know, when they collected in trade and they decide to put, um, you know, the fourth part of the sacrifice crossover into the OMAC project trade, not the other three parts, but just part four. And then they have a recap of the other three parts. Now, fortunately I also have the Superman sacrifice trade paperback, which has like the one or two issues leading into, and then one issue I think leading out of, and it's got everything in it that, that you need. Now I sort of see better how it all, it fits. I, I don't know at the time that I, I mean, other than, what Wonder Woman ultimately does to Max Lord. I don't think I really saw all of the, the connective pieces, but I, I don't know. I, I probably should rub up against it more, but I don't, I, I found it to be fine. And I don't know that it would have worked to either have it as its own fifth miniseries leading into things or, or to have had it as part of the OMAC project. I don't know that either of those would have worked as well as just having these things happening in the Superman titles. And then of course, in the wonder woman titles as well, and just having the, the effects of it happen because we do get a repeat of the scene with, with wonder woman and max Lord in OMAC project proper. So I don't know. I didn't, I didn't, no, that's didn't have a problem with it. 
here's the thing. I mean, I at the time I was reading all the books anyway. I was right, obviously reading too. all the Superman books. I was reading Rucka's Wonder Woman, so it wasn't like anything additional. But I don't know, especially in retrospect, I'm just kind of like, guys, like, what are you doing here? But it's fine. <laughs> um, so, I, I also I'm not surprised that they only included the concluding chapter of Sacrifice in the OMAC trade because those those Superman issues that tie into it, they're fine. But it's really just. Yeah. Superman thinks he's fighting someone and then it turns out he's not. And we kind of get, you see that play out a few times, right? Until you get this reveal. The the Rucka Adventures issue is, is more relevant. I think the biggest thing that you get there is Jean probes Clark's mind and sees that Max Lord has done this. So, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's the first instance where our characters at large are like, oh, it's Max Lord, right? Ted had found out but was killed. So this is now sort of, you know, sharing that bit of information. But then, yeah, really, it's that Wonder Woman issue where, uh, again, Max is puppeteering Superman and pitting him against Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman is able to get uh, Max Lord in her uh, in, in her lasso, and Max lets Superman free for a moment. And essentially is explaining, like, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this to him. You can't stop me. And while he's under the influence of the lasso, she says, what can I do? And he says, kill me. And in a very famous moment, <laughs> which we have seen echoed on screen in different mm-hmm. forms, <laughs> Wonder Woman snaps Max's neck, killing him and freeing Superman from this mind control. And, and it's publicly broadcast across the entire planet. Yeah, at the end of the OMAC project, this is is publicly broadcast. And also just a quick plot it, but following Max's death, Brother I, the spy satellite, uh, it, it becomes autonomous. And we'll, we'll later find out in Infinite Crisis, Alexander Luther was was pulling the strings there. But uh, and then the OMAC army just goes, you know, goes berserk, and and you know that's propelling us into Infinite Crisis. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, let me toss it to you. I, I guess how do you feel? We'll get to the killing in a minute, but. Uh, and yeah, folks, we'll mention Man of Steel. How could we not? But <laughs> <laughs> here's what I was thinking about this. It's like, regardless of what you feel about the Snyder movies, uh, man, have they given us a lot to talk about. And as the podcaster, Absolutely. I am, and I enjoy the movies, but as a podcaster, I'm just like endlessly grateful because it's like, man, there's always a lot to talk about. Anyway, how do you feel about Superman being susceptible to this mind control in the first place, I guess? Because it is established that Max had been building to this for years, apparently, right? He had been, he had been, whatever it is that he's doing to allow himself to gain this level of control, right? It wasn't like, oh, all of a sudden he just pushed Superman to, to kill, right? He had been working his way up to this, kind of planting the seeds for it in Superman's mind for quite some time. But how, how do you feel about that? Uh, I was, I, I'm fine with it. I think it's a perfectly valid choice. I think that for a character who has relatively few weaknesses, I think mind control, telepathy, that kind of thing it is perfectly reasonable, right? He's vulnerable to kryptonite. He's vulnerable to magic. He's vulnerable to sort of outside mental manipulation. Um, and that, and, and that's kind of it. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm, I'm fine with it. Um, and I think it leads to, the larger debate, which I mean, let's face it, fans of superhero comics have had for years, not just the debate over, you know, 
when, if ever, is it okay for a hero to kill a villain? But, you know, I guess what, you know, what are you, what are you protecting against when you do that? Um, it, it raises questions that, you know, Batman has had to field for a long time, including here, which is, you know, Batman's notorious has notoriously sort of kept detailed notes and tabs on pretty much every superpowered being in the DC universe. And even in the case of some of his closest friends and allies, um, ways to take them down or ways to, if necessary, kill them. Um, we've seen it in a number of different ways um, in, in across media. I mean, one of my favorite DC animated projects is justice league doom where, you know, Batman, you know, the justice league essentially finds out that Batman has these plans and, and they don't know how to feel about it. So I think there are a lot of interesting questions that are raised. And I think they're really, I think they're real world questions about what do you do if you live in a universe where people are, have the powers of gods. And for the most part, they're choosing to use them in, in a pro-social uh, protective way. But what do you do if those people are corrupted? And, and again, whether from within or from without, what do you do? You have to have a contingency. You have to. And so if you have someone as powerful as Superman who has been who's being used as a you know as a weapon against his will you have to have a way to stop him you have to have a way to take him down um that then led very naturally into the question of did Wonder Woman do the right thing and it became not just a question for the readers to grapple with which I love but it became a question within the DC universe itself because everybody on the planet saw it happen and so wondering did she do the right thing and and it creates a really interesting debate it divides the heroes it divides the villains it, div it divides the entire world and these are questions we've been having on you know on a non-meta level for decades so to have it happen on a meta level i thought was really great yeah it's, it's funny because as a fan as a superman fan i'm just like that wouldn't he wouldn't allow that to happen to him like he like he, that you wouldn't be able to do that to superman that's kind of like the gut reaction i'm like clark you would have been able to withstand that but on a story for looking at it from a story perspective no i agree with you because i think that you know this is now forcing the issue right this is the the question right can can these beings be entrusted with this power and yeah to your point it's like even if even if you can you can trust them when they're acting of their own accord. There are these instances where there's not. That's why I always look at Batman as one of these keys to understanding Superman because you entrust yeah. Batman with that kryptonite ring, you give him the means to step in if if need be. And that helps explain, because again, once again, a Snyder quote, but you know, Bruce at the start of Batman v Superman, this whole bit about if there's even a 1% chance that he can take us out, we have to treat that as an absolute certainty. And it's like it, it is if we're really looking at this through as realistic a lens as possible, it's, it's reasonable to to kind of come to that. And again, Max is, you know, Max proves his own point here, right, where he's like, I'm doing this because you guys can't be trusted with this. Now, yes, he's the one who's ultimately making this happen, but it could have been someone else. And so he is showing why there is this need to be able to stop these characters. So yeah, I mean, again, as a fan, it's like the notion of Superman just being puppeteered by Max Lord, not my favorite thing in the world. I guess I did appreciate, because earlier in the story, Max tries to use his mental abilities on Sasha, and she's weirdly able to withstand it. 
And and as I'm reading that, I'm like, what the hell? So she can withstand this, but Superman can't. But again, this this whole idea that he's been working on Superman for a long time, I, I you know, I, I can get on board with it because again, I think it is really important for for where we're going here. As far as Wonder Woman killing Max, you know, it's so funny because when uh when Wonder Woman 1984 was coming out and we knew that Max Lord was the antagonist there. Yeah. You know, we were all kind of speculating, well, we know how their story turns out in the comics, but <laughs> we had another recent DC movie <laughs> where <laughs> the villain's neck was snapped. So I don't think that's going to happen here. And uh, obviously they went the route of, uh, I don't know, whatever she did in that movie, she used her spirit to talk to people. I don't even, I, I did not like that movie. Anyway. <laughs> um, but, you know, but it was, it was funny going into that. Like, how are they going to handle this? What, um, where I get frustrated how do I put this? In terms of story, I get why Superman reacts the way that he does to Wonder Woman's actions. And one of the other, I think, big compliments that I can pay this whole run of of stories leading up to Infinite Crisis, I think when you get to Infinite Crisis number one and you get to that scene that runs throughout the issue of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman on the blown out watchtower having this heated debate, it feels earned. And what I always loved about it was the the tension that's between them, the philosophical divide that's between them feels feels real. It doesn't feel, you know, manufactured. You get where each of them is coming from. And I always liked that it wasn't a matter of, oh, Superman and Batman versus Wonder Woman or Batman and Wonder Woman versus Superman, right? They each have a problem with each other, right? Like it's a pretty even, even split here, which I, I think is effective. But so on that level, I get why Superman reacts the way that he does. But I don't know, man. I just like, it bothers me. I mean, I, so I guess, how do you, how do you feel about Wonder Woman's action and in, in terms of executing Max Lord as well as Superman's reaction to her, what she's done? All right. So let me go back a little bit. Um, I think you used the right word when describing Max Lord's intentions. when You said that he's trying to show them uh, because the reality is, yes, he's the mastermind behind this, but I think in his mind, his feeling is, if I don't do this, somebody else will. And what they're going to do is probably going to be even worse. So I want to show you the problems with this whole superhero thing um, so that you can address it now. I think he thinks he's doing a service uh, for the heroes and for the world. Um, I think that while I think the sacrifice storyline probably could have been a little less repetitive, and if you want to know just how repetitive, you look no further than the covers of each of the parts of the crossover, because I guess there was some sort of editorial mandate that the composition of the image had to be the same with Superman sort of leaning his fist and shoulder into a bad guy. And then when we get to the Wonder Woman, it's Wonder Woman in the same position, but against Superman. So there is a, a similarity in terms of those compositions with just a different villain sort of you know, substituted in. So I think that there could have been a little bit re less repetition, but I think the the lead in to where it all goes is very satisfying and very effective. Um, and I think choosing Wonder Woman as the one to ultimately put an end to this was a brilliant choice because Wonder Woman of all the heroes is the one who's about love and compassion and understanding, right? I mean, she's got this, this, saying and i always butcher it but i, I have one day I have to memorize it it's like don't kill if you can maim don't maim if you can 
injure, don't injure if you can subdue, don't subdue if you can reach out a hand in peace, something to that effect. Um, and to see her go so far as to snap someone's neck, I mean, and it is not done in silhouette. It is brutal. And, and this image by several different artists is, is burned into my memory, um, I think is a really important one. I think it's supposed to have the same effect, the same shock value for the readers as it does for the characters in story. That of all the people, Wonder Woman is the one to to do this, but she feels completely justified in this. And and again, it it sparks that conversation of when, if ever, is it okay for a hero to kill? And and given the circumstances, and of course, this is the context that most of the DC world doesn't have, is that conversation with Max Lord beforehand that you recap so nicely, where you know he admits the only way I'm ever going to stop is if I'm dead. And if a villain says that to you, I think you have to take him seriously. I think you have to take it at face value. And you can't have a character like Superman running around without his mind and his control, beating on people, thinking that it's someone else. Thinking it's, as you said, Dark Side, Doomsday, Brainiac. Uh, I think Ruin was one of yeah, them, yeah, too. In there, right? Um, so... I, I I was excited about it. I was intrigued by it. Um, but I think it fits the tone of the DC universe at the time coming out of identity crisis and realizing that heroes are sometimes called upon to make really difficult choices. The, the vote to mind wipe Dr. Light, the vote to mind wipe Batman in identity crisis is a similar kind of moment um, where whatever side you fall on, is not what's important. What's important is that you understand both sides of the debate and, and why they made the choice that they made. I think that this also sets up those conversations in identity crisis and a lot of the conversations even beyond this particular event. Uh, and for that reason, I think it was a, a really bold, interesting and exciting choice. What I did not want to see from the sacrifice crossover when I originally read it. And this time is that cliched moment where somebody Superman cares about, you know, looks him in the eye and shakes him and says, snap out of it, Clark, fight it. You can do it. And he sort of claws his way back mentally from, from the control and, and snaps out of it. I, we've seen that so many times and there are times when it works. There are times when it works, but I think that in this particular instance with the tone of the DC universe with the story they were trying to tell, I thought that that absolutely would have been the wrong move would have been taking us so far backwards that it would have invalidated a lot of the crisis event in the first place. And so I'm happy they didn't go that, that direction. Yeah. It, you know, we, we've talked about this a lot, especially when we talk about the notion of, of heroes killing and Superman in particular, whether it's in the context of the man of steel movie or the John Byrne uh, arc when he executes the phantom zone criminals. And yep. as I always say, it's all well and good to say that whether it's Superman, Batman, any character will never kill as long as writers provide outs for them. And there's always a way. And what I appreciate about something like man of steel or this story is I think you are being shown. And this is another instance with, with wonder woman. There really wasn't an out. Cause you're right. It could have very easily been, and yes, as a Superman fan, I would have loved if he had been able to break through this on his own, but it's like, no, that's not what this was about. So it's like, if you're in a situation where uh, Max has this control over the most powerful being in the universe, what would you do? And uh, I thought Wonder Woman's actions were 
perfectly justified. It's it was interesting hearing you talk about how you know she felt like a surprising choice given her background. In my mind, it's like she's the warrior. She understands the battlefield. Sure. She understands tactic, sacrifice, strategy, all of that. So. Uh, you know, she made a tactical decision there, not one that she relished, not one that she enjoyed, mm. right? But she knew it had to be done. I guess what frustrated me was, again, Superman's reaction. He's appalled at what she's done. And Bruce, too, when she goes to the Batcave and explains what she did. And poor Bruce, he's got a lot going on. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, Superman's- Bruce should be dead at this point, too. I yes. Mean, Superman kicked the crap out of him. And he's- bandaged up, lying down, and can barely move. And then very shortly after, he's sort of up and suited up again and, and back in it. So again, I think what, from a story perspective, you need to have this disagreement among them. I get that. As a Superman fan, it, it uh, I don't know. I was a little frustrated with Superman in his reaction to this because it's like, what would you have had her do, right? You were under, you allowed yourself to be controlled by this metahuman and nearly killed your best friend. And this was the choice that she had to make. She made, you know, I, I may fired up about this because it's like <laughs> Di, Di, Diana made that choice so that you didn't have to, right? Like she took that on. You talk about a sacrifice. She made that Absolutely. sacrifice. She crossed that line for you. Um, and the other thing too, and I, yeah, I get like so far afield on this, but just this idea of, of for Superman in particular to, killing or not um and we talked we talked about or and just the larger idea of, of superman's morality i talked about this last time where uh there have been numerous instances especially recently where i've realized i guess i i'm like uh, ascribing my morality to superman and so if he acts or thinks differently than me it's like it's it's jarring to me and <laughs> it's it's weird because on the one hand, yes, there are certain kind of indelible principles that we know Superman follows, but at the same time, there's not, we've seen that morality change, right? You go back to those earliest golden age stories. He's clearly killing people. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And also he's the product of, of countless writers and artists over all of these years and across media. So it's, everything is kind of always at least shifting slightly and a product of multiple things. So there's not always, I guess, one clear, answer per se. Um, but I guess because I've been inspired by Superman, right? It, but it's this weird thing where I guess if Superman and I differ on that moral question, maybe it's my arrogance rather than saying, oh, gee, this character I love who's inspired me, who is this ultimate hero, thinks this, maybe I need to reconsider. I more look at it from the perspective in my arrogance, perhaps, of just this is not the right characterization for Superman because this is not what I think. And so I recognize that. I totally recognize that. But, uh, and the other thing too, and maybe this is uh, my legal background, right? Like not that the law is always correct, but the right, like there are instances where taking someone's life can be justified. So then that's the legal side. Then of course there's still religious side, just the ethical side. Generally, I know there are a lot of pieces to all of this, but the sort of this blanket, like we'll never kill. And at the same time, to be clear, it's not like I'm saying I want him to be out killing people all of the time, but I feel like he would recognize instances where that was really the only appropriate choice because I would recognize it. And so again, this is where I'm like glomming my morality onto him. I ha- I'm continuing to wrestle with this, but that's what I was kind of going up against in, in this and in reading it. 
yeah, and I and I think you bring up some some very sort of honest and raw feelings about all this that don't often come up. And I'm so happy that to see you sort of fired up about it because <laughs> I think you're right. Like if we get at least part of our morality from the superhero comics that we read, which I think is a perfectly valid place to have gotten morality because more often than not, um, you know, our mainstream superheroes because they're crafted and written by, you know, writers are generally doing the right things. They're making difficult choices in the face of circumstances. And and we wish sometimes that we could make those kinds of decisions, even if they're hard when we probably don't. Um, but, but yeah, when we get our morality from them, if, if then those characters behave in a way that we find questionable, we have to either ask what's wrong with them or what's wrong with me. And it's far easier to say what's wrong with them or the writer didn't write it correctly or that's not my Superman or it's much easier to put it off on somebody else than it is to look inside ourselves and, and see how we really feel about it. And that's, one of the things that I tried to do in this reread with this story, because I, you know, knowing that, that Max Lord's uh, murder was going to come up, I really wanted to approach it as honestly as, as I could. Um, and I had really no problems with Wonder Woman killing him. And I don't think that that means, as you said, I d- it doesn't mean that I want every superhero I read to be this sort of grim and gritty Watchmen style hero who's going to you know throw the villain down the elevator shaft and laugh about it afterwards um but i i think that there are instances where you look and say this person had no other choice and not and i firmly believe that but i also believe that it doesn't even matter what i think about it because i am applying my human morality to wonder woman who is in essence a god and if i were a god my sense of morality would be shaped by so many other things than my humanness, because I wouldn't be human in the traditional sense. So I, I think it's unfair in some ways for us to impose our morality on them because what they're dealing with, the power that they have and the forces that they're laid against require a different morality than you and I will ever experience. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 you know, that that certainly makes sense, and and again, just for the audience to be clear, like I, in the context of this story, it's not I don't have an issue with how Rucka wrote Superman, right? In this instance, I get it, and it makes sense, and you need to have that tension between them. It's yeah, it's sort of this larger thing, and really looking at these characters as if they're real. Uh, with Wonder Woman in particular, this was a great payoff to an issue of Adventures of Superman written by Rucka, which you and I read and talked about last year. And I recently brought up last week when we did Identity Crisis. It was an Identity Crisis tie-in where uh, Superman is talking to Batman and Wonder Woman, I think at the Fortress, about uh, how to deal with ruin. And this is where Superman acknowledges he knows what the League had done to Dr. Light in the past. And Batman is just like, you knew, and that's kind of put off to the side. But it's more about Wonder Woman's reaction. And it was so t- clearly Rucka knew where he was going, right? And was planting the seeds for this because Wonder Woman's like, you sh- like you like you shouldn't have let you know the league shouldn't have you know uh, erased his memories or changed his personality. You should have killed him, right? And it's this question of well, like what is the 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 lesser of two evils in terms of taking someone's mind, their memories, their personality versus v- versus their life? 
And especially in this instance where you think about like what what options did she have? Max is pretty clear. If you knock me out when I wake up, I'm going to do this again. Now, yeah, maybe she could knock him out and get him to Martian Manhunter quickly enough to do something. But we had seen Jean's abilities were limited, right? When he was probing Clark's mind, he really could only do so much. What would the option be? Probably another magical lobotomy. So what is, you know, when you when you talk about, uh, you know, the again, the lesser of two evils here. Again, in terms of how I look at it, I think she made the right call. And then the the other thing here, and I I don't mean to always bring up Man of Steel, but I remember I remember Henry Cavill giving an interview, and I don't know if it was right after Man of Steel. I feel like it was quite some time later, but he was talking about at the time, you know, like his next solo outing as Superman, poor guy. But he had said something like he wanted to see now where Clark's story goes after the events of Man of Steel. He's like, you know, he's not going to kill again, obviously. And I remember, you know, watching that interview and I was like, again, maybe again, imposing my morality here, but I I look at Man of Steel and I think that, um, you know, the, the way the city is destroyed, right? The battle takes place in the city and it's demolished and clearly there's a lot of casualties that I look at as the product of, Hey, this was his first day on the job. And you see in Batman V Superman, one of the first things he does when fighting doomsday is take him to an, an unpopulated area. But the killing of Zod, and again, I know people feel differently and people feel strongly. It's all good. But, you know, in in my mind, if Clark were, I don't think that Clark's actions in that moment were a product of him being inexperienced. I think it was a product of he was forced and he was in a situation just like Diana here where it was either kill or let that family be killed. In my mind, if Superman, even the Superman after Zack Snyder's Justice League, if he were placed in that exact same situation again, because again, I don't think it was a matter of, oh, he didn't know the strategy. He didn't know what else to do. It's like he, he was faced with that choice in that exact moment. So again, I, I just it's hard for me to always see it as this absolute line, but I do get it. And I do also, we've talked about this too, like when we talked about that ending battle story, uh, that crossover in the Superman titles that Joe Kelly was, you know, was one of the creators involved and with Manchester Black and no matter what, Clark thought Manchester Black had done. He still wouldn't bring himself to kill, to kill the character. And, you know, there is something to be said for this just at, like totally aspirational version that is unbending, unbreakable, no matter what, there's this line that he won't cross, even though when we, again, view it through how we would react or even how this character would react in a real world situation, there, there's something valuable, I think. And, 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 uh, you know, I, like I get it. I do get this kind of notion of this, uh, this absolute, but you know, I, it's, it's fun to talk about, I guess. <laughs> it is. And, and I think it's necessary too, because I think the world has gotten more complex and, and it's important to not try to see it as all, all this or all that, or, you know, I, I don't think any of these situations are black and white and, and, you know, even Man of Steel, which I don't, I don't share your love and appreciation of the Snyderverse as a whole. And the only way I can really kind of accept Man of Steel, it's sort of as a, I'll say as valid, but no, it's valid. But the only way I can kind of come to grips with with the way he behaves in that movie is to say what you mentioned before: like he is very early in his career, and this is a movie about failure this is a movie about making the mistakes that anybody makes their sort of first few times out in any job or undertaking and and 
my my what I rub up against most in that movie is the internal inconsistency of allowing the entire city to be just demolished. But what pushes them over the edge are three people, mm. you know, um, and, and that's the moment. Whereas, you know, we had 40 minutes about of, you know, Superman and Zod throwing each other through buildings. And, you know, we get glimpses of the suffering and the injury and the death around it. And at no point during that, does he say, I got to end this. Now. You know, let me just snap this guy's neck. And it was only when three individual people and granted, he's looking directly into their faces. Like he can see the fear that they're experiencing. And, and part of it may have been that empathy of, you know, now it feels real as opposed to sort of, you know, these buildings just sort of falling down, even knowing that there are people inside who are going to be suffering. It, it just felt like it was too little too late for me in that particular uh, moment. But I do think it's important to have these discussions. And if what sparks them is a superhero comic or a superhero movie, then great. But I think we live in a complex world. And, and I think that there are circumstances where we may be called upon to make really difficult decisions like this life or death decisions and, and knowing how we we would approach that and knowing what circumstances for us might cause us to cross that line, I think is, is really important. I agree. And, and, and again, even as, as I'm laying out what I did, I know people feel differently. So it's all, again, it's all good. I like we're saying, I think the conversation's important and that, so I'm grateful for this sacrifice spinoff and OMAC project and everything because it's it, yeah. it it prompted these thoughts and these discussions and I think that's great I love working with the material like this so I agree we're getting close to two hours so what I would like to okay. do is maybe like a little lightning round about the other miniseries because I'll be honest like I said I don't have a ton to say about them so let me just go through a few things quickly and then I'll toss it to you and share yep. whatever you'd like about them Day of Vengeance it was so funny to me because I'm thinking the whole time I'm reading this, it's like, okay, the Spectre is without a host and is kind of going crazy and the DCU is in disarray. And it's like, this is Day of Judgment. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, uh, very similar. But I guess it's uh, it, it shows the consistency, right? When the Spectre is without a host, things go, things go poorly. Um, overall, I thought it was, you know, it was fun. Uh, it's funny because it ultimately builds, the, our, our Shadow Pact group only take things so far and then... In the final issue, they're literally just watching a fight between the sh between the wizard and uh, and Spectre, and that felt a little odd to me. I mean, we had seen the wizard throughout, so it wasn't like oh, they just shoehorned him in at the end, right? It had he had been there, but I don't know for a story about the Shadow Pact. I guess I would have wanted them to like, accomplish more or do more. Not that they don't accomplish anything. Uh, and what we ultimately find out in Infinite Crisis was that. Uh, the Alexander Luther, right. And Superboy prime, they need the magic of the DC universe to fuel that tuning fork or whatever it is. That's going to bring back the multiverse. So that's kind of why they're having specter declare war on, on magic. Yeah. I, I, I found this very entertaining. Um, I didn't have a tremendous, uh, emotional attachment to any of the characters in the shadow pack. Cause I, before I read this the first time, I didn't know any of them. And now I have some familiarity, but even so, none of them have really been featured in any sort of major roles um, in the DC in the last 20 years. Um, but I found it very entertaining. I mean, you know, you could, Bill Willingham, who, you know, I didn't know at the time, but as, you know, having read fables and all that, you know, great writer. Um, and, uh, and Justiniano's art is just spectacular. It's just spectacular. 
Um, it's a shame that he hadn't been able to do more. I know he had some legal troubles shortly after this series and hasn't been, um, you know, creating comics since, but I was really drawn in by the, by the art here. It was different. It was familiar enough, but different. And I, I really, really enjoyed that. I also really liked how they, they pulled on the thread of Jean Loring, the Adams ex-wife having been the mastermind unwilling, unwitting, I guess, mastermind in the, in the identity crisis story and then being taken over by the Eclipso persona and sort of becoming a, a full sort of villain, even though it's not Jean herself, she's under the influence. Um, I wish they had done more with that, you know, moving forward. Cause I don't remember that becoming really anything beyond this, but it was nice to see the tie between identity crisis and this build up to, to infinite crisis um, in that way. Beyond that, yeah, I don't have too much to say, but I, I just enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Right on. And I think the, you know, the, the logic that Eclipso uses against Spectre, this whole idea of, well, you want order, right? And magic represents chaos. So if you eliminate magic, you'll achieve your, your desired goal. And in that battle with, with the wizard, the wizard's like, if you, you're not doing what you think you're doing, you're not destroying magic, you're just breaking all of these bonds that have kept it in check and magic will be right. run amok and all of that. So yeah, no, like that was cool. Again, overall enjoyable. The, oh, the funny thing too is that in the time since Day of Vengeance, the Arrow television show used Ragman in its fifth season. Right. And I remember, I liked the character well enough on the show, but I remember, because that season in particular, after delving into magic and supernatural in season four, which I really did not care for, in season five, it really got back to a more, more grounded approach. Yet they had Ragman in there, and I and they wrote him off fairly quickly because I think they realized like this guy's too powerful. It was a weird. <laughs> it was a weird addition to that show. Uh, yeah. The Ram Thanagar War again, very action packed. Art was gorgeous. You know, I love the the idea of Hawkman and Hawkgirl, right? Who people on the ground, right, assume are on the side of the Thanagarians, and no, like they're actually working with Adam Strange and they're trying to bring peace and. We have the cult of the seven devils from uh, from from Thanagar, and we bring back Anamar Sin, who was part of the Return of Hawkman story in JSA. So, like that was cool. Overall, I I just felt like this was pretty light, like great art, great action, uh, but I didn't feel like there was a ton of meat on the bone here. It was entertaining though, and I liked the spectacle, and I liked kind of like I said, the outer space sci-fi feel worked more for me than I than it I would have expected it to. So, you know, it was solid, but um yeah, I didn't have a ton on that one. I echo everything you said. I I, I remember liking this series more the first time I read it. This time, you know, drooled over Ivan Rice art, but beyond that, I found myself moving sort of very quickly through it, even sort of speeding through some of the narration boxes just to kind of get the broad strokes of things because I didn't feel like anything super groundbreaking or connected was going to happen with regard to infinite crisis. So um, I, it's something I, I will certainly keep in my collection. I'm not getting rid of it anytime soon. It's enjoyable, but yeah, I agree. Not, not much meat on the bone with villains United. You know, it's so funny again, it's been almost 20 years. My memory of this, I thought it was really all about the society and then mm. as I'm reading, like, oh no, like there was this whole group <laughs> who were resisting and they have their own thing. And yeah, it was fun. I think Gail Simone really did a great job of, you know, of, of playing these characters off against each other. It was, I really liked the Catman glow up because we had seen him in Brad Meltzer's Archer's Quest and he's the schlubby loser at this point. And then here <laughs> he's just totally reinvented himself 
uh, in terms of physicality and and just his whole demeanor. Uh, so so I thought that was cool. Ragdoll, another character used in the Arrowverse to great effect. I thought that was always so cool. Uh, so, so creepy. Yeah. So like that was kind of the funny thing too. These characters who, when I first read these stories, I really knew nothing about, had no connection to. Now we've seen them interpreted, uh, you know, on screen in various places. And then to kind of go back and look at these stories, I definitely enjoyed them more because I'm like, oh, okay. Like I, I have more of a connection uh, to that character. It was also the other thing I know I mentioned we have the, the business with the two Lex Luthers. I don't mean to nitpick. I felt the reveal of that there were two and that are the, the Lex in the green war suit. We got his narration for a bit. That just felt very, very tacked on, but it's fine. But Pariah, they dig up Pariah from the original Christ on Infinite Earths and Alexander Luther kills him. But of course he comes back because I know he figures prominently into Dark Crisis, which we're getting to. Yeah. But uh I forgot that he was in this and now reading all these crisis things together. I'm like, Oh, like that was a cool pull. And, um, I know I said, I reread that JSA classified arc with power girl. I won't get into all of that, but basically psycho pirate is, um, showing her like all of these different potential origins as he's trying to get through to her that, Hey, you are this, the last survivor of, of earth two from the pre-crisis multiverse. And, um, <clears throat> that, that arc ends with her getting taken by Clayface. And here in Villains United, there's this business about gathering certain representatives from the different Earths of the multiverse that was, right? Because that's what Alexander Luther is going to use as he's trying to bring back these other Earths. Uh, you know, so you get that bit of business. And then I guess the last key plot point is that what Alexander Luther, posing as Lex, has convinced all of the villains is that they are building this giant device to mind wipe the heroes, We'll find out an infant crisis. No, it's not that. He's bringing back the multiverse, but that's how he's gotten all of them on board. It's like, they did this to Dr. Light. We're going to wipe their minds. And that's kind of what uh, the setup is. But yeah, it was, it was fun. I enjoyed that. I guess I would say I enjoyed probably OMAC the most because it was the most relevant. And there, and again, it's, it's spun off into sacrifice. Like there was more going on and the more Superman, then probably villains United. Then I don't know, day of vengeance or Ranth Anagar, a little bit of a toss up, but, but what about villains United? Did you want to say? Um, yeah, I, I, I sh probably shouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I did. I, I, I mean, the, the characters, just for the listeners who haven't read it, the characters featured in this secret six sort of resistance group, Catman, Deadshot, who maybe is the most prominent of, of all of them, a parademon, like a sort of <laughs> nameless fit with parademon, Cheshire, Scandal Savage, not Vandal Savage, Scandal Savage, and Ragdoll. This is a very strange group. You'd think if you know if you're going to do a group of villains who are uh, you know standing against all of the others, there's certainly no end to the combinations you could create. But you would think that to sell the book, you'd want more prominent villains, some you know someone's arch nemesis to be on the. But don't go that way. And I kind of like it because, like you said earlier, like there's a little bit of a clean slate with a lot of these characters because they're so relatively underdeveloped over time that, you know, there are interesting pairings and relationships and arguments that, that take place that felt really natural, that felt like evolutions of the characters. And then you still have this enormous, basically the, all of the other villains of the DC universe are right against them. And I just, I, just, I really, really enjoyed this. I, I more than, than I thought. I mean, it, it looked great. It was exciting. And because they were sort of CD list villains, 
fighting against all of the other villains, I always had the sense that like anybody could, could die at any moment. And because you're not dealing, you know, it's not Luther and the Joker and Sinestro and, you know, it's not the Legion of Doom from Super Friends where you probably wouldn't want to kill off a major villain. Like, the stakes were low, but kind of high at the same time. And it was just sort of unpredictable, which I think for a story focused on villains is a necessary element. So I, I really enjoy I didn't expect to, but I really, really enjoyed it. Well said. Well said. Yeah, it was a lot of fun for anyone who hasn't read it. Uh, I, 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 that's one I certainly do recommend. Yeah. All right. Well, that was our countdown to Infinite Crisis. It was, like we've been saying, a very exciting time, especially if you were experiencing it live in the DCU and especially if it was hitting you at the right point in your fan journey like it did for us. And I appreciate you rereading all of that material and, and having this discussion. And I'm, I'm glad it seems like you enjoyed uh, w- what you read as, as did I. Uh, and yeah, I mean, next up we're getting into infinite crisis. It's uh, uh, I'm excited to, to finally get back there. Me too, particularly because several years ago we talked about it on the uh, comic shop book club podcast. So I'm curious to see what you and, and your guest have in store for that, especially because for you, it's a, it's a reread, but a fairly recent reread because you, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we tackled it. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear it. Yeah. And, but, but this is the first time I'm rereading it after all of the, the prelude material. Right. So right. yeah, it'll be, it'll be in every time we do this, there's always some little different, uh, a little different yeah. way to attack it. So uh, yeah, no, was, uh, again, I thank you very much. And I look forward to having you back in two weeks for 52. I am so excited to read the series and to revisit it with you particularly because i know you haven't read it before so this could i mean look this could crash and burn and you could hate it i don't know but i doubt it given the creators involved and given where the story is going and 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 i think i think you'll appreciate it because you're reading this sequence of crisis events and it has a really important place bridging gaps from one crisis to the next crisis so yeah i'm super excited yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So uh, I thank you, Scott. I thank you, audience. Everyone, pour one out for Ted Cord. Although, don't get too upset. He comes back later. So yeah. <laughs> this poor guy, his voice cracks when he's talking to Superman. And he's yeah. like, he's like, Superman was kind enough not to notice. Again, the humanity. I love, I love that about that issue. And, you know, and about this period of time in general. I think it really showed the least characters as, as people. Um, and I, I, I do appreciate that. So. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, audience. We will be back in one week with chapter six of Red Skies, Infinite Crisis. Don't miss it. As always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.